from Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church and Touchpoint Ministries. This is the Gary Talks About God podcast. If you would, take your Bibles this morning and turn them to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. I'm sure many of you know this, and many of you will probably tune in with millions of other people around the world on Saturday, May 6th. Saturday, May 6th is the official coronation of King Charles III. I I guess he is king already. I, I don't know how you get to be king before you're coronated, but Not my country, not my laws, so I'll let them figure that out. But he will be officially coronated that day, King Charles III. And part of the coronation ceremony will include Charles being anointed as king. And I found this, I found an article. They have an official coronation website, which I guess is the first ever official coronation website. The last one was... 50-some years ago, so there wasn't an internet. But according to the article on the official coronation website, quote, In a special ceremony at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, the anointing, anointing oil has been consecrated by the Patriarch of Jerusalem, his Beatitude Patriarch Theophilus III, and the Anglican Archbishop in Jerusalem, the Most Reverend Hazem Noam. I need a better name. I need a better title. The Beatitude Patriarch Theophilus, who means friend of God. I I just, I need a better, better title. I mean, that's, that's amazing. But anyway, the, the article went on to describe the process and the spices used to make the oil and how it was consecrated and the oil will be transported uh, and, and delivered to the Archbishop of Canterbury who during the ceremony uh, will take the oil and pour it into a spoon and from the spoon will take the oil and will anoint Charles on his hands, his breast, and his head. And that anointing will be a visual representation declaring to everybody who tunes in that he is now officially King Charles III and has been set apart as king. When we arrive in John chapter 12 this morning, we will read about the anointing of Jesus. It is one more step, one more visual representation of Jesus being set apart to accomplish the will of God. What we will find unusual this morning is that his anointing does not point towards his kingship. In fact, it points to something very, very different. So beginning in verse 1 and going down to verse 11, let's read what John writes. He says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? 
He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also Lazarus with whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. When we come to these verses, John goes into great detail in the first two verses to set the scene for us. We're told that it is Passover. This is the third Passover in the book of John. And in fact, the actual Passover will occur in just six days. Because they are given a dinner, we are told that it is night. So this is going to be Saturday night. So Saturday night, they are in Bethany. And John makes this comment that, again, Sometimes we read the Bible just too quickly and we miss what was said, right? Look at what he says. They're in Bethany. They're at the, they're, they're having dinner and it says where Lazarus was. Now your first inclination to go is we know that because we were told earlier that Lazarus was from Bethany. So of course Beth, Lazarus would be there. Do y'all not see why it's kind of, see how we can read that too fast? Because just a few verses ago, Lazarus was what? Dead. (laughs) But now there's a dinner, and Lazarus is there. (laughs) He is at the dinner. He is alive. He is eating. He is no longer dead. So it's not that it's just Bethany, and that's where Lazarus was. No, that's he's there because he is now alive and at the table. And they're there having this, this meal. It says, so they gave a dinner for him there. Now, if we're not careful, we may think this meal is for Lazarus. Right? I, I, mean, I mean, because if you were dead and then you were raised to life, I would want a meal to celebrate. I, I would want cake. I would want lots of cake. I mean, my diet would be thrown out the window. We're, we're, we're eating cake. We're celebrating. We're feasting. Why not? You know, gather the family. Let's have a great feast. But the dinner is not for Lazarus. The dinner is given for Jesus. It is in honor of him. Yes, for raising Lazarus, but the thrust and the emphasis of the dinner is all about Jesus. And at this meal, we are told by name that Jesus is there, Lazarus is there, Mary is there, Martha is there, and Judas is there. We also know that other people are there. We just we don't know their names. So in these first two verses, everything kind of seems normal, right? I mean, other than the guy who was dead being at the table who's now alive, it seems like a normal dinner party at the house. It is not until verse 3 that things kind of turn. And John has spent the first two verses drawing our attention to what Mary does in verse 3 when we're told that Mary, therefore, right? Mary, therefore, takes a pound of expensive ointment and anoints the feet of Jesus. 
So as we look at the anointing of Jesus this morning, I want you to notice a few, few things. I want you to notice first that the anointing of Jesus is an act of devotion. It is an act of devotion. When we get to verse 3, one of the interesting things about verse 3 is look again at the order. What do we know before Mary anoints Jesus' feet? What does John focus on? All the adjectives. Look at all the adjectives. We're told about the ointment. He draws our attention to that. And, and this, this ointment, is, it's not an ointment like a lotion. It's, it's going to be more like an oil that you could, you could pour out. And families would have a fragrant oil in their house. This was common. And here's why it was common. The idea of taking a bath every single day is by far a largely Western and recent, uh, I don't want to say discovery, but, but habit and ritual. Okay? Our level of cleanliness, and I hate to even say it that way because it implies that other cultures are dirty. That's not it. But the level we take to being clean is vastly different than the rest of the world. Maybe except for the exception of Western Europe. Having lived in other cultures, I can attest to this. Okay? And I'll just, I'll leave it like that. <laughs> All right? If you really want to go, well, how do you know? Moscow subway in the middle of winter will tell you very quickly. Okay? So they're not bathing one time a day. They're maybe not even bathing one time a week. So when someone comes over and you're having a dinner party, and I, and I know, again, our Western sensibilities, we're like, I can't believe, you get used to the smell. There, there's nothing inherently wrong with body odor. I mean, we think that there is, but there's really not. But at the same time, they recognized, and cultures have recognized, that's maybe not the most pleasant aroma to have at a dinner. <laughs> and so they would take the oil, and they, they would maybe wash the feet, they would maybe uh, put some on the person, just to kind of make the, the atmosphere, the aroma in the atmosphere, smell a little better. That, again, is not unusual. What is unusual is the magnificence of the oil. Right? Look at what we're told about it. First of all, we're told that there's a pound. All right? this, is, this would be the Roman pound. It's a little bit less than ours. But basically, if you were to go and buy the, 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 the generic one fluid ounce size of perfume today that you could buy, you would need around 15 or 16 bottles. That's a lot. Right? You buy one bottle, it lasts a long time. So now you've got 15 bottles of this perfume. It is a lot. Then he tells us, not only is there the, 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 uh, the amount extravagant, we're told that the cost is extravagant. Right? He says, of expensive ointment. Does, you know, a pound of cheap ointment, a cheap oil doesn't matter. But this is, this is expensive stuff. This is expensive stuff. We're told when Judas protests that it was worth 300 denarius. 300 denarius is a day, one denarii is a day's wage. This is a year's worth of wages. Based on current minimum wage, this would be a $15,000 bottle of perfume. It is expensive. 
But then we're told about the magnificence of its quality. What, 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 what kind is it? What does it say there? It says it's pure nard. Pure nard. Now, the nard plant, fascinatingly enough, is not from Israel. It's from India in the Himalayan region. And so travelers would bring it there in, in, in the Roman Empire. You know, they would trade with the Roman Empire. So that's how it's here in Israel. But it would be expensive just for that reason, but it's made more so because it's pure. There, there's nothing else in it. When you go to buy perfume today, did you know that there is more than one ranking, I, I, I guess, uh, or different concentrations of perfume? Did you know that? The, the most expensive perfume is, and i got to get all French, excuse me, perfume, right? And then you go down from that, it's like eau de, uh, I think it's eau de toilette, eau de cologne, or something like that. It, it, it goes down in the concentration of the perfume. But even at the top level, it's only about 20 or 30% pure. Here we're told it's, it's pure. There's, there's no impurities in this at all. Right? I mean, we're, we're called immediately to the extravagance of this, this, this oil. And she takes this oil, right? And then when we read the corresponding account in Mark, it tells us that she, she, she breaks the flask, meaning there's no going back. Right? Perfumes today have a little stopper on it. You, you, you don't break the bottle to use it. She breaks the flask, so she is going to use all of it. She is not going to hold anything back in showing her devotion to Jesus. And she is going to use every single drop on him. She doesn't anoint Lazarus. She doesn't anoint Judas or any of the other disciples who might be there, any of the other guests. All of her devotion is going to be lavished on Jesus. She is going to devote the absolute best that she has. I mean, it automatically leads to a question, does it not, in our lives? How are we displaying extravagant devotion to Jesus today? I mean, we can't anoint him with all. We understand that. But, but how? How are you in your life, in your walk with Christ, showing extravagant devotion to him? And there's no one size, one universal answer. But in your life, in my life, we are supposed to demonstrate this type of devotion to our Savior. And Mary says, this is how I'm going to do it. I will take perhaps the most costly item I have in my house, and I am going to break it, not save any of it, and show my devotion to my Savior by anointing Him. Secondly, the anointing of Jesus is an act of separation. So it's an act of devotion, it's an act of separation. It says that she takes the oil there in verse 3 and anoints the feet of Jesus. Now, let's, let's, we've, we've talked about seating arrangements in Jewish tables before, so let's just do a quick recap, right? They're sitting at a table. It's a low table. They would be sitting on the floor. They would be reclining, and they would be reclining at the, at the table so that their, their upper body is on the table and their feet is pointed away from the table, okay? So the feet aren't underneath the table. They're, they're pointing away from the table. And 
you know, everything is, 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 is going normal, right? It's a dinner party. People are eating, people are talking, everything seems to, to be normal. And then all of a sudden, Mary gets up and, and, and just pours all of this oil on Jesus. Now, if you were there, this would be odd. <laughs> the oils are supposed to be applied before the meal, not after. But she comes in the middle of when everybody is eating, you know, relaxing and just enjoying the moment, and she does this. And as she does this, it is immediately setting Jesus apart. Right? The oil is on his feet, nobody else's. He's, he's, he's being set apart to the point that it says the entire house is filled with the fragrance. So everybody can see what she has done, and now everybody can smell what she has done. And what she did, and John makes it very clear, was she anointed Jesus. Now, anointed at its very basic level just means to be set apart. And if you go through Scripture, you will notice all the times that people are set apart. Right? You can go through 1 Kings 19.16. Elijah anoints Elisha. And Elisha is set apart as a prophet. You can go to Exodus 28.41. And you can read about Moses anointing Aaron and setting Aaron apart to be priest. And from then on, the priests are anointed to be set apart to the priesthood. 1 Kings 138. Zadok the priest anoints David to set David apart as king. Another quick side note on the coronation of Charles III. When he is coronated and when he is anointed, do you know what will be played? There will be an anthem played that is entitled Zadok the priest. I wonder where he got that from. Ooh, pick me, pick me, I know. It came from 1 Kings 138 where Zadok the priest anointed David. It was written back in 1727, and it's been used when kings and queens have been coordinated. We also see in Exodus 49, Moses anoints the temple, setting the temple apart for God's service. Now, when we go through that list, I don't know about you, but my mind's checking the boxes. Okay, check. Uh, Jesus is prophet. John 1, 21 through 22 talks about this. Is this the prophet? Yes. <laughs> this is the prophet that Moses said is to come. It is him, the prophet speaking God's word, calling people to repent and be saved. Matthew 1, you read that and you see that this Jesus is the descendant of David. He is going to be the king who sits on the throne. You go to Hebrews uh, uh, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 14, where it says, Jesus is our great high priest. We saw in John 2 where it says that Jesus says, no, I'm the temple. This is going to be destroyed. It's like, I'm talking about the temple of my body. So we see in all of these, we see that how Jesus was set apart. He is the ultimate fulfillment of all these offices. He is the ultimate fulfillment of being the temple. He is the ultimate fulfillment and the ultimate one to be set apart to complete God's mission. He was the one who was sent. He is the one who was sent to be the author and the perfecter of our faith. He is the only one. There is no other who has been set apart to save us. 
No one is coming after Jesus and will say, hey, he was the fulfillment of Jesus. No, Jesus is the fulfillment, and he has been set apart in every aspect of his life and of his ministry. And he was set apart so that we could be saved. Now, we're going to come back to this in just a minute, but we're going to move on to the third thing I want you to notice this morning. The anointing of Jesus is an act of submission. It's an act of submission. Again, takes the bottle, opens it, and anoints Jesus. And when she does that, she does something that is both humble and intimate. Okay? And when she does this, she is breaking a whole bunch of societal norms. Look at what she does, right? She breaks it, and then we're told, wiped his feet with her hair. And so our first reaction, if you're like me, the first reaction is, well, that's odd, right? I mean, you don't typically clean things up. Has anyone here ever cleaned up anything with their hair? Okay, then all of y'all look at me like, you looked at me like, it's not that odd. It's odd, <laughs> People just don't do that, right? But you want to know something else? At this particular point in time, women did not let down their hair in public. They didn't do it. And inside this setting, because there other people were present, it would, it would, be, it, it would be a public setting, right? Because hair... Right? If you let down your hair in public, if you uncovered your hair as a woman, you would be viewed as a woman of questionable, if not loose morals. Okay? Hair was viewed as, as, as being sensual. And I, I don't need to go into detail, but you know that that is true. Right? You know that that is true. Here's how you know that that is true. You will touch your wife's hair, but if I touch your wife's hair, you're going to hit me. Right? You don't touch people's hair. You just, other than your barber, who else touches your hair? Here's my point. So for her to do this, it's basically her saying, I'm submitting to Jesus. I, I, I am, all of me, I am submitting to him. I'm not holding anything back from him. And then she takes her hair and she wipes his feet. Now, I want to speak carefully here, and I need you to listen carefully here. Because what she does in doing that is a very intimate act. Not a sexual act, but an intimate act. Again, going back to the hair analogy, right? You touch your wife's hair, wives touch, you touch your husband's hair. Another body part that we just don't typically touch is feet. Right? You'll touch a baby's feet, touch Zephyr's feet, grab his little feet and squeeze his little feet. Right? But by and large, we don't, you don't touch somebody else's feet. You might touch your spouse's feet, but you're not going to do this. So this, this is an, an, an intimate act. So she, she bows down, she, she prostrates herself before Jesus, and, and in doing so, at, at his feet, because you have to be down on your knees. You're, you, you can't, well, I can't, I can't bend over and touch anybody's feet. So she is on her knees before Jesus, 
Do you see in that the submission of her act? The submission of, of her anointing Jesus? She, she's worshiping him. You didn't bow down to the feet of someone unless you were going to worship them or forced to. You could be forced into compliance as conquering kings would, would make prisoners bow down to them in an act of humiliation. But here she willfully submits herself to Jesus, saying to Jesus, here I am. You, you are my Lord, and, and, and I, I, am, I am your servant. I mean, it is, isn't an act of incredible and humble love, an act of pure love and, and submissive worship and, and reverence. It's a, it's a beautiful act. Now, where does this act fall in the context of the larger story that we've been reading? It's sandwiched between two very different stories, is it not? We just had John chapter 9, John chapter 10, John chapter 11, right? Where Jesus healed the blind man, the discourse about the sheep, and Jesus raised Lazarus. And all three of those, there was another group kind of lurking in the background, was there not? The religious rulers of the day. Surely this isn't the man who was born blind. You don't know what you're talking about. You're going to school us? Who's the sheep? You're the shepherd? You got to be kidding me. You're not a shepherd. He's going to lead our people astray. He raised Lazarus from the dead? Would it not be better for one man to die than the entire nation? You've got these three chapters leading up to this act of the religious leaders of the day who should have recognized Jesus, right? Speak plainly. Are you the Messiah? The lame can walk, the blind can see, the dead is raised to life. I'm the one before Abraham was. I Speak plainly. Are you the Messiah? They can't see it. And in their inability to see who Jesus is, what do they not do? They don't bow down to him and worship him. They remain stiff-necked and refusing to worship him. I mean, look down in verse 11, right? Excuse me, verse 9. The crowd has come because Jesus was there, and they came not only because of him, but because of Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. And they're seeing Lazarus. And so look at verse 10. The chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Again, because people were going to believe in Jesus. Remember a minute ago in John chapter 11, one death was sufficient? Now we're up to two. They refuse. They refuse to submit to the lordship of Jesus. And here is Mary in the middle, submitting, falling on her face before Jesus and worshiping him. So if they're the first and she's the middle, what's next? The next is Judas, right? Because Judas pops up after all this, hey, we could have sold this and, and, and give the, the money to, to the poor. 
Why, why didn't we do that? That would have been some good. That would have been really, really, really used. Man, we could have made, we could have done some good with that. You know what the twin statement for that is today? Man, we could have used that for missions. I actually saw this. This happened a, a few months ago. Now, I could give away where we were, but they, it was a conference, and, and they were debating uh, this issue, and somebody stood up and said, you know, if we just pass this motion, all the money that, that we would be using to, to counteract what they were trying to do could, could be sent for motions. There was a really cantankerous part of Gary that wanted to walk to the microphone and say, hey, if we weren't here today and just did everything remote, think about how much money we could save from meeting today and send it to missions. You know, sometimes it may be true. By and large, it's not. Because we, we, we know that it's not with Judas, right? It has nothing to do with the poor. The only poor person in Judas' mind is him. He, you know, he's dipping out. Hey, Judas, how much did we collect? Well, there's two for y'all, one for me. Two for you, one for me. We got four. We got six. <laughs> So again, here is, here is Judas saying, no, I'm not going to submit to Jesus. And you want to know something else? You don't have to turn there. Matthew 26 is, is the parallel account of this in Matthew and Mark. All right? Matthew 26 starts with the plot to kill Jesus, has the anointing of Jesus that we're reading about here, then verse 14 says this. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. Which was, one piece of silver was one day's wage. Judas betrays Jesus for a month's worth of wages. Mary sacrifices a year's worth of wages for Jesus. And we come and we look at what she is doing. Sandwiched between the Pharisees and the religious leaders and Judas, and we can't help but be drawn to notice Mary got it. Mary understood And so here is Mary. I mean, she might not know... The, right, the, the church hasn't been formed. There's not all these how you're supposed to worship. All she knows is in her house is her Savior and her Lord, and she is going to submit to Him. And the way that she can demonstrate that is taking the oil and pouring it all over Jesus and bowing before Him. Because she recognizes that Jesus is her Lord. Right, And, and we need to recognize that as well. Jesus is Lord over all of us who call on His name, which means if He is our Lord, then we will submit to Him and to His authority. We will submit to Him and to His will. And we do that our entire lives, not just once, but every single day. And what we also realize and recognize is that He is actually Lord of all. And one day He will return, and when He does, that will be proven to be true. Because at that time, we know that every knee will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. And then that qualification 
there's not a qualification as someone who is a believer, but everyone will recognize, hey, Jesus is Lord and will submit to his authority. But then finally, it's an act of uh, preparation, an act of preparation. And this ties back to the point of being separated, right? We went through that list, prophet, priest, king, temple, that were set apart. And, and when they would be set apart, it would be a great time of celebration. In fact, the next thing that happens in John 12 is the triumphal entry, Jesus going into Jerusalem, people shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's celebration. It, it's a time of excitement. So you would think that Jesus would take this and say, man, I can't wait to go fulfill my kingly or priestly mission. You know, this is what I've been prepared for. But what Jesus says is, The anointing is not for that. Look at what he says in verse 7. He says, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. He connects the anointing to his death. Now, just as chapter 11, Caiaphas spoke more than what he knew here, Mary is acting in more than what she fully understood. Right? She is acting in devotion and submission to Christ. And Jesus says, this is, this is what you're doing is pointing towards my burial. Now, the disciples and Mary and Martha, and, and, and they are disciples as well, did not fully understand that Jesus had to die. He kept telling them they didn't understand it. But Jesus says here, again, this is for my burial. Now, you can't be buried unless what? You're dead. Ask Lazarus, who's sitting at the table, right? So anyway, Mary is acting in in more than she should know. How far in the future is the cross? Six days. The cross is about six days away. This is his mission. This is his mission, to go to the cross and die. Mary is preparing him for that mission. And he accepts it. Judas grumbles. Some of the others grumble. But he accepts it and says, this is why I was sent. This is why I am here. I'm going to go to the cross to die for your sins. In a few days, I won't be with you. I'm with you now. Mary has to worship me now. Leave her alone. And I find this fascinating because he makes a very odd statement. Anybody notice the odd statement he makes at the beginning pointing to his burial? So that she may keep it for the day of my burial. But she's used it all. How is she going to keep it? Many people have have tried to interpret this, and and, and there is no definitive idea that has been put forth. I'm going to put forth one this morning, and I'm kind of hesitant to do it because I didn't read about it anywhere else, but to me it seems kind of plainly obvious. I could be wrong. So with that caveat, I think she is able to keep it And it has to do with the sense of smell. Sense of smell is incredibly powerful. There is a certain smell that kind of has a little fake banana hint to it that when I catch a whiff, I become a nine-year-old kid in the magic store at Carowinds. Right? I I remember the little bar with the the 
jewels that you hold and twist, right? I mean, it just, I smell it, bam, I'm immediately transported back more decades than I want to confess this morning, right? You, you understand, the sense of smell is really powerful. Where is the perfume at this point in the story? It's on Jesus' feet and where? Her hair. How often do they bathe? Not very. Where's that all going to go? Where's it going to go? It's going to stay in her hair. And I don't think it's too much of a stretch to think that it's going to be there in six days. So that when Jesus is being taken, is taken off the cross, and she turns her head and her hair moves, and she catches a whiff of the nard that she has kept it for herself. It's there. It, it, it's, it's on her. And you know what she's going to be reminded of? She's going to be reminded of her act of devotion and submission was actually one that was pointing to his death and burial. Notice the irony. The smell of the perfume that fills the house, the smell of extravagant love, becomes the smell of impending death. And she's going to carry that with her. And it wouldn't just be her, would it? She walks past Martha, Martha smells it. She walks past Lazarus, Lazarus smells it. She's standing in the marketplace and she moves and someone else smells it. She's going to carry with her the smell of impending death because that is where Jesus is going. He is going to the cross. Again, in a couple of months, Charles will be anointed and he will pledge his life for his people that it would be in his best interest, in their best interest, for him to live a full life, for him not to die. When we come to John 12, Jesus is anointed not to live, but to die. And in his anointing, it is a promise that Jesus will fulfill the mission for which he was sent. And it is in our best interest for Jesus not to live, but for Jesus to go to the cross and die to fulfill his mission. For it will only be through his death that we will have life in his name. The Gary Talks About God podcast is a production of Touchpoint Ministries and Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church in Germantown, North Carolina. Want to learn more? Visit our website, at www.redbankmbc.com If you enjoyed this content, please like and subscribe. Thank you for joining us.